So Joshua Jewel Horton is going to be preaching this morning. He's been on staff just shy of a year. For those of you that haven't met him, he is our student ministry director, working with middle school students and high school students. And he has an amazing way of, uh, of relating and connecting with students and with parents and with volunteers and helping the, the next generation find and follow Jesus. And so we're blessed to have him with us and uh, preach for us. So would you welcome Josh up this morning? Well, good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. It is a sweet gift for me to be able to be with you this new year. As Mark said, my name is Josh. I'm the students director here at our Menlo Park campus. And uh, if you're joining us here or online or at one of our campuses, San Mateo, Mountain View, Saratoga, San Jose, thank you for being with us. We're so glad that you are here. Um, I love the new year. It's a unique time. It's one where we all, young and old, rich and poor, happy and sad, and everything in between, we all seem to give ourselves a little extra permission to pause and to reflect, to consider our lives think about what they are versus maybe what we had expected them to be, to think about what we accomplished versus what needs to maybe get re-added to this year's resolution list. But I wonder what it would look like if rather than just taking an evaluation of our accomplishments, we instead paused this morning to look a little bit deeper and to consider who we are becoming who we are becoming. Because whether we think about it every new year or every month or week or like you're really existential and you think about it every single day, we're all becoming something. You are, I am becoming something. And I think most of us are reminded of that daily in our lives, right? You go on a hike and you realize that your body isn't quite what it was a couple of years ago when you tried to climb up some steep hills. Maybe you've noticed that your joyful friendships that were so full of laughter have kind of descended into sarcasm, and you can't seem to step out of it. Maybe you've noticed that the occasional drink has turned into a nightly habit that you can't quite kick. Maybe you catch yourself complaining to a coworker, and you remember when you used to be excited and passionate. You wonder, when did I become so cynical and bitter? And you ask yourself, is this who I wanted to become? Is this who I want to be? Who am I becoming? I love that word, becoming. It exists somewhere between what we are and what we could be. There are a couple of guys who work here at Menlo named Keith and Adam. Some of you guys, maybe Adam was singing just a minute ago. Look at those guys. Look at those cuties. So great. Uh, Keith and Adam are good friends of mine. They really took me in when I started working here in February. So much so that I decided to let them in on one of my great, great loves, which is football. But I'm not talking about no Scott Palmbush, hard helmet, hardly use your feet football. I'm talking about the real football where, get this, you use your feet. Incredible, right? Yeah, the beautiful game known as soccer. Now, Keith and Adam, they're from Texas and Oklahoma, respectively, so I can't really blame them for being so naive about this great sport of soccer. But as their new friend, I can just let them sit around in their ignorance. I had to educate them. So, and this is really real, I created a 21-slide, 45-minute PowerPoint presentation 
titled Football, A Brief and Comprehensive Overview to indoctrinate, I mean, uh, educate uh, them on the ways of soccer and most importantly, of the greatest club on earth, Chelsea FC, based in London. And since then, we've begun watching games together. We send each other articles on the sport. When the World Cup was on, we were following Chelsea players because let's be real, the United States didn't stand a chance. And uh, on Halloween, even we dressed up like Chelsea supporters. There we are, that's uh, in the office. That's how we used our work day that day. And through our repeated gathering around the famous Chelsea FC and our engagement on the subject, I'm happy to say Keith and Adam have become Chelsea fans. Round of applause, everybody. Yeah. That's right. Okay, so uh, this morning we're going to see some examples of a truth that I think is so obvious, uh, can be so obvious, that we might even altogether miss how important it is for our lives. And that is this. You and I become what we practice. We become what we practice. If there's anybody in here who has ever played a sport before, you have heard this phrase, practice makes... Right, but does it? Because I believe our passage this morning tells us that practice makes people, that we become, we are formed by what we practice. And it's all in this weird, strange Old Testament passage from 2 Kings chapter 5 that we're going to talk about this morning, where we meet these two men named Naaman and Gehazi, who are on very different trajectories. So first up, we meet Naaman. The passage opens by telling us that Naaman is the supreme military commander of uh, these armies in Syria. So he's highly regarded, and the text describes him as a valiant soldier, very accomplished. And immediately, though, it tells us another important detail, which is that Naaman had leprosy, which is a skin disease that made your skin essentially rot and decay. Then it says, one random day, one of Naaman's slaves, a young Jewish girl who he had taken captive during one of his raids, came to Naaman's wife and said, hey, I know a guy in Israel who could, who could take a look at that. He could heal that. So Naaman catches wind. He goes to his king and he says, hey, uh, there's someone in Israel who can heal me. The king says, by all means, go. What are you waiting around here for? So the king writes a letter to the king of Israel. He says, dear king of Israel, uh, please heal my general, yours truly, king of Aram. And he like sends the letter and he packs Naaman up with a bunch of money, a bunch of gold and silver and like fancy clothes and Gucci bags and Rolexes. And he's like, go buy your cure, go off to Israel. So Naaman hits the road. He arrives in Israel with this huge posse of servants and cadets, and he hands the king of Israel this letter. And the king of Israel opens the letter, and he's like, what am I supposed to do with this? I can't heal leprosy. What is going on here? And that's when this man named Elisha, who is a prophet in Israel, catches wind of the situation. He summons Naaman to him. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 9, we pick up right here. It says, Naaman went with his horses and his chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, way better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and he went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, hey, 
my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down, he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored, and he became like that of a young boy. Now, I don't know about you, but this Naaman fella feels pretty familiar to me. He actually sounds like some people I know, like pre-temper tantrum, right? Think about it. He's wealthy. He's smart. He's educated, respected. He has everything going for him. Naaman is at the very top in terms of status and accomplishment. Socially, financially, he is at the very, very top maybe like some of us here today. In many ways, Naaman is like the typical Westerner or the typical Peninsulite, right? The kind that we encounter in our grocery stores or when we go to school or in our workplace. And yet, as we said, in spite of having all of that, in spite of having everything the world could possibly give you, Naaman had leprosy. He was literally physically falling apart. But Naaman goes on a journey, right? He takes all of his pomp to Israel to buy a cure. And when he gets there, there's no welcome party. There's no respect. There's no celebration of his arrival. Elisha, the prophet, doesn't even come out to greet him. He sends a servant to say, go down to the Jordan and wash seven times. That actually tells us all that we need to know right there about the trajectory of Naaman's story. It's down. He goes down to Israel to get a cure, sent by a slave girl. He goes down to the Jordan to wash. It's down, down, down. But it's there at the bottom, at the rock bottom, where his wealth and his success and his standing in history can't help him. There at the bottom where Naaman finds his cure and so much more. Maybe you have been there. Maybe you have experienced what Naaman has experienced, where you've achieved and attained and chased and chased, and when you've reached the end, you found you were still left wanting. After all, as Matt Stefan pointed out to us just a couple weeks ago, we human beings have a tendency to feast on what won't fill us. I'm sure there are some here who have come to the realization that no matter how hard you try, there's no self-made cure for what you're dealing with. For Naaman, it's actually in the middle of his need, at his lowest point, that he finds grace, that he meets God. It's there at the bottom that he learns so much about what we observed through Advent, that grace is the gift of God that we don't deserve and that we cannot earn. Naaman comes to Israel saying, I have so much to offer. Name what I have to do to be cured, and I'll do it. Name is in my name. I got this. Give it to me. I'll walk on water, right? I have so much to convince God that I'm worth saving. But he had to learn that it wasn't about what he had or what he could do. It was actually about what he needed, which was the free grace of God, the healing grace of God. So Naaman emerges from the Jordan. He's healed. He goes back to Elisha and he's full of gratitude. There's this like crazy 180 change in him. So much so that he gets there and he offers Elisha a gift, like a financial thank you. And Elisha says, it's not the time for that. No, no, no. I'm good. We don't need that. 
That's when Naaman packs up his stuff, starts to head back home, and we meet a character named Gehazi. Now, Gehazi is in every way a direct contrast to Naaman. So while Naaman begins on the top with all of this prestige and pomp, we have Gehazi who's actually a servant in the house of Elijah. He is probably like an apprentice prophet to Elisha. So Gehazi's journey, though, isn't one where, in his own mind at least, it's downward. He's seeking to move upward, and he's seeking to do it at the expense of other people. In fact, the passage tells us that Gehazi is so mad that Elijah turned down the financial gift that he chases after Elisha, or uh, he chases after Naaman, he tracks him down, he stops him, and he says, hey, um, Elisha changed his mind, so all I need you to do is just give me all the Rolexes and stuff. I'll take the swag bags. Don't worry about it. I'll make sure they get to the right place. It's all good. Just send them with me. So he takes them home, he hides them, and then Elisha summons him and says, Gehazi, where have you been? And Gehazi says, uh, I was right here the whole time. What are you talking about? And then Elisha rebukes him and condemns him and curses him to have the same leprosy that Naaman had. These two men could not be on more different paths from one another. We're seeing here in real time who these men are becoming. It's being shaped by their beliefs, their postures, and their practices. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 15 through 18, we see right before this whole ordeal of Gehazi trying to get all the swag from Naaman, Naaman is just washed in the Jordan. He comes to Elisha, and this is what it says. Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, that is Elisha. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, Surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Okay. There's a lot going on there, and we're going to unpack it, but we're going to start at the top. Notice in verse 15, he, he doesn't say, now I know that your God is better than my God, right? Naaman doesn't come and say, now I know that the Jordan is not as bad as I thought it was. I might bring my wife here on holiday next year. It was like really nice. It was better than I expected, right? No. What does he say? Now I know there's no other God. This one is the one. See, somewhere on the journey, the walk between the shores of the Jordan and Elisha's house, Naaman has been doing some thinking. Naaman met God at the waters, and as a result, he's had a shift in his belief system. He's thinking. The great Naaman has been humbled. Gehazi, on the other hand, actually believes that he's racially superior to Naaman. A little bit later in verse 20, we see the justification he makes for chasing Naaman down and taking his stuff. It says, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, the Aramean. He looks down on him because he's Aramean, because he's a Gentile. I look at my own life and I wonder, are my beliefs like those of Naaman, who experiences God and sees life through the lens of free grace, or 
Is it a bit more like Gehazi who sees life through the, ends of this air, the lens of this air of superiority which lets him think that he is owed things just because of who he is? We see these men's shifted beliefs set in motion, then a shift in their postures. Listen to what Naaman says next to Elisha. He says, please now accept a gift from your servant. Okay, first of all, servant, right? Like what happened to the guy that was throwing a temper tantrum just a few verses ago when he was told to bathe in the water? Like what about this grand military commander? This guy now is standing before Elisha. He calls himself a servant, And then, a gift? I mean, he shows up expecting to have to buy something, but he's gotten his cure for free. He doesn't need to spend. But Naaman is becoming someone new. Naaman is changing. And as a result of this new understanding of God's saving grace that came to him when he finally realized he had nothing to offer, it set in motion this shift in his posture. And as a result, Naaman has become radically generous. Listen to what Tim Keller, who shaped a lot of my understanding on this passage, says on this. He says, one of the marks of a person who's experienced the grace of God is that there is always a radical increase in their generosity. Because if we're honest about our money, we see it's not just money. It is self-esteem currency. Our money often determines how we feel about ourselves. It determines whether we feel accomplished or whether we feel like we've made it in life. It's our security. It's our self-worth. But when God and His grace becomes your self-worth and your security, becomes your value, money is just money. Here, proud, wealthy Commander Naaman is becoming humble, generous servant Naaman. And Gehazi, on the other hand, believing that he is superior to Naaman, that he's owed something, becomes the opposite of generous, right? Gehazi's beliefs spur him into deceptive greed, taking from Naaman, who was so ready and willing to give. We then see that their shifted beliefs and postures bring about a shift in their practices. Now, did you catch in verse 17 that Naaman asks to be given, quote, as much earth as a pair of mules can carry? Anybody have that on their Christmas list this year? Yeah? As much earth as a pair of mules can carry? No, not quite? Okay, when I first read this, I was like, um, what? <laughs> what is going on here? Why does he want dirt? Well, theologians explain that as the military commander and overall number two in Syria, Naaman would have gone with the king to their pagan temple to worship. The king would go in there regularly, would sit, would worship there, would bow there. And the number two would be required to escort the king in and would bow there with him, would actually even allow the king to like prop himself up on him. He would be bowing so much. And that is the life that Naaman is going back to. But while Naaman is going back to his life, Naaman is not going back to his way of life. Because Naaman is becoming someone new. Naaman has met God. And so he says, I'm going to let the world know that even though I'm coming back to Syria, I now worship the God of Israel. And here's what I'm going to do. Every time I kneel in this pagan temple, I'm going to put down some dirt from Israel as if I was bowing in Israel itself because I only worship now one God, and that's the God in Israel. There is no God in all the world except in Israel, says Naaman. And... What of Gehazi? Well, so goes the punishment of Elisha and God. If you desperately, so desperately want to steal, if you so desperately want the life that Naaman has, 
then so be it. That is now your lot, and you have his leprosy. Don't miss how the practices of these two men has shaped their opposing trajectories and where it's landed them. Naaman, the broken man with leprosy and a rotting heart, may now worship God in a temple, and Gehazi, the active church participant who knew and said and did all the right things, now has leprosy and is falling apart. We become what we practice. If you're anything like me and you've gone to church for a lot of your life, this passage is a little bit uncomfortable, almost a little scary. It's quite the warning. In Israel, there is this plant called an arar. Uh, It's this plant which is bright green and has these massive fruit-looking type things on it. So you could imagine how excited you would be if you were in the middle of the desert, maybe you ran out of food or water, and you saw this bright green plant looking you in the eye. Um, There's this rabbi that I listen to who takes teenagers on Holy Land trips, and uh, when he is taking them on these trips, inevitably, the teenagers will see the plant, and the first thing they ask is, can I have one? Can I go eat one? And he's like, yeah, sure. So they run over to it, and they peel off a fruit, and when you crack it open, There's this little poof of dust that comes out, and on the inside, there's nothing but rot and cobwebs and poison. Stunning on the outside, decaying on the inside. Now listen to Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the one who trusts in himself and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like an arar in the wastelands. They won't see prosperity when it comes. He shall dwell in the parched places of wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. I don't know about you, but I long to be like this tree planted by water. This passage paints a picture for us of who we could become. It casts a vision for who we're meant to be, which is a people who are so connected to the source of life that is Jesus, that no matter what comes our way, we still bear fruit. We don't even have fear because our roots run so deep. The only way for you and I to become this type of person is through consistent meeting with God. By washing not once, but seven times in the Jordan. Again and again and again. This is what we mean when we here at Menlo talk about the with God life. Friends, did you know that God wants to meet with you? The God wants to meet with you. And I don't mean that he wants to be just like a part of your checklist or like to get added to your New Year's resolution list. Hot take, I don't think he actually even really cares if he makes it onto the New Year's resolution list or not. That's because in every moment, in the sacred and the mundane spaces of life, when you are changing diapers and paying your bills and driving to work and doing your homework, when you're getting dressed eating dinner, 
lying awake at night, in every moment he is there and he is waiting for you. He has grace and freedom and strength and rest there for you like a stream of water for the roots of your soul. And if there's someone here today who maybe doubts that God longs to walk with you in this way, hear this. If he wanted to bring grace and freedom and wholeness to a pagan militaristic slave master named Naaman, he wants to bring it to you too. God doesn't just love you. He likes you. He delights in you. And he longs for time with you. I've been told that I'm contractually obligated to share a Dallas Willard quote. So uh, here is this one. (laughs) Dallas says, uh, we don't believe something by merely saying we believe it. Or even when we believe that we believe it, we believe something when we act as if it were true. So how are your practices shaping who you are becoming? I actually want to invite you for just a second with me to do a little bit of soul searching. I'm going to ask a few questions, and I want you to just reflect on your last year, on your life. Who did you become in 2022? Did you grow in 2022? How did you grow? What did you learn? To whom did you give your time, your money, your love, your focus, your attention? Was it worth it? Are you more joyful than you were a year ago? Does your hope run deeper? Is your capacity for love greater than it was this time last year? Are you proud of who you're becoming? Is your spouse, are your friends proud of who you're becoming? How about your kids, your parents? And the big one, are you becoming more like Jesus? What have you been practicing? How is your fruit Three quick practical applications. First one, practice meeting with God. Some of us have grown weary in our relationships with God because we've given up the practice of meeting with him. There is no place where you and I learn to become our true selves like time with God. And that can look like Bible reading or prayer or walking around in nature or silence and solitude or listening to a podcast or reading, you name it. But you have to create space for meeting with God. And maybe you're not quite sure where to start. Well, I'd recommend every day this week in the lead up to our Hearing God series, look at this plug, uh, every day this week, I'd recommend asking God where he wants to meet with you. Just ask him. Let's see what he says. Second one, practice meeting with God with others. We all know how hard resolutions are. If you uh, really want to look like this tree, though, that is rooted in and out of season, you have to have others who come alongside you in life when your leaves are fading, when you're not doing well. If you and I are not strong enough to earn our healing on our own, we're not strong enough to maintain it. At Menlo, we have a variety of life groups for all ages and stages that you can join to be a part of a small community who walks through life with you. We also, as Mark said, have Starting Point coming up, which is a place for you to get plugged in to know more about Menlo and to join us in helping the Bay Area to find and follow Jesus. And lastly, church, all of us together, it's time to practice getting our hands dirty. 
you know, I have to imagine that newness is not just scary for us, that it also was scary for people back in Naaman's day. But Naaman has been reformed by this encounter he's had with the living God. He's been made new. And so Naaman walks forward in this new life, awaiting him back home with courage and with handfuls of dirt, right? Dirt that is a marker, a reminder of this source of new life that he has received. Dirt that when he gets home and life feels so uncertain and unknown and mundane, he'll be able to hold on to it, to trace the hand of God in his life. If we can trace the hand of God in our past, we can trust the hand of God in our present. And so Menlo Church, as you walk into this new season, as we walk into this new season together, where there could be a lot of newness, some of which we all may love, some of which you may not love so much, I want to invite you to step in with dirt on your hands, to approach this new season with an openness that's built on the foundation of remembering who God has always been, to have hands that carry with them the evidence of a God who has always loved and cared for this church and will continue to do so, and to embrace what God is doing in this church right here, right now. Roll up your sleeves. Get engaged. And as we practice these things, may we become who we really are, which is a people who were made to be grounded, fulfilled, empowered, and shaped by the transforming grace of God, the incredible gift which we don't deserve and cannot earn. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of your free healing grace. Grace that you extended to someone like Naaman and that you have for us as well. For those of us who maybe um, have known your grace for a long time and have begun to feel like it's no big thing, I ask God that this would be a year where we would be newly wowed by how much you love us, by your desire to meet with us. God, I ask that you would give us the motivation the intentionality to meet with you and that in that space you would make us new. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.